I wonder if you noticed as Joe was reading those verses for us that Hannah's prayer was heard and it was answered in the life of David. The beginning of 1 Samuel and the end of 2 Samuel, we see a God who keeps his promises even as people have to wait a long time to see him fulfilled. Christmas is a season of waiting. It's a reminder that we are waiting for our Lord to return. And so I think it's fitting that we kind of begin Advent, as it were, begin this Christmas season with the end of 2 Samuel. Lord willing, next week we're going to bounce over into Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see God continue to keep his promises to Hannah and David through Mary and ultimately to Jesus. So this final section of the book of Samuel, which includes First and Second Samuel, provides a conclusion of the two books, not by recounting David's final days on earth. If you want to read those, you can read First Kings chapter 1 and 2. But by recording six summary snapshots that are taken from various seasons in David's life. On the whole... These six snapshots in chapters 21 to 24 that we're going to look at in kind of an overview way this morning show David as a king who is flawed, but nevertheless who demonstrates repentance and trust in the Lord, and therefore he's used by God to lead Israel out of trouble and into worship. God fulfills his promises for a king who will lead and rescue God's people, And even though David is flawed and physically failing as a king in these latter days, God continues to provide even as his people await another better king to come. Now, if primary kind of importance and significance in this section is the fulfillment of God's promises to sustain his anointed one and to defeat Israel's enemies, which Hannah was praying about back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to come back to that prayer at the end of our sermon this morning. Now, these last four chapters in 2 Samuel form an epilogue, a concluding set of events that show that God is continuing to keep his promises and continuing to fulfill what he has promised through David. Now, I want you to notice, and I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If not, I would encourage you to have a physical Bible with you. Um, Generally speaking, I prefer physical Bibles over electronic versions, but I'm not going to bash you for having that. But sometimes it helps to be able to see the broader context in a physical Bible. So if you have a physical Bible, look at 2 Samuel 21. I'm just going to show you the kind of the ways these last four chapters lay out. Okay, then we're going to come and look at them. But I just want you to see how it's structured first. First of all, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, you have a catastrophe coming on the people of Israel um, as a result of David's sin. And David intercedes and intervenes in that catastrophe. Now, you see that in chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Look at chapter 24, and it ends this way as well. In chapter 24, David sins again. And his sin brings catastrophe, but he repents and God intervenes. So in the beginning of this epilogue, chapter 21, you've got the king's sin and God's intervention. And at the very end of this epilogue in chapter 24, you've got the king's sin and God's intervention. Now what's in the middle? Well, if you look back at chapter 21, after the events of David's sin in verses 1 through 14, you get a war. 
If your, if your Bible says anything about that, it'll say something about war with the Philistines or something going on with the Philistines again. And this is David's mighty men, those, those men that are part of his army, engaging in battle on behalf of Israel. And we see that in chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. We see another account of David's mighty men in chapter 23. If you'll flip over there. Chapter 23, beginning at verse 8, you see something, it'll have a list of David's mighty men. They're cataloged here. They're listed by name. Now, where does that occur? That occurs right before the king's sin in chapter 24. And then right in the middle, right in the heart of this section, is two poetic expressions of worship. We get, first of all, in chapter 22, basically Psalm 18. It's the same thing. Psalm 18 is the same as 2 Samuel 22. It's David recounting and worshiping God for his deliverance from the hands of the Philistines again. And then in chapter 23, the beginning, verses 1 through 7, we get another song of worship, the last words of David spoken as words of worship. So here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to show you. I've explained before that oftentimes the Hebrew Bible, and really the whole Bible, you, you need to understand literary structure, especially as it conter- concerns the, a structure known as a chiasm. Think of a Pac-Man's mouth, sideways V, Okay. And I know Pac-Man, younger generation, they still know Pac-Man. Pac-Man's mouth. You've got the, the, the top and the bottom of his mouth. These, these events would correspond to the same thing. Then as you move in, you get another correspondence, and then you get, you get to the center, it's the same correspondence. So what we have, what I've tried to show you is at the beginning and at the end is a similar event. Then in the middle, there's a similar event, David's mighty men. And then there's a poetic expression of worship right at the center. So why is that significant? Well, it's just going to show you that this this section isn't haphazardly thrown together. The literary structure itself is pointing toward the way it's supposed to be interpreted and the meaning it's supposed to communicate. It's very important to understand that. So that little literary point aside, let's dive in now and look at the actual chapters. We're going to look at these in three headings, these two kind of these parallel events. So we're going to look at the two occasions of famine, that happened in chapter 21 and 24 as a result of sin, the two accounts of David's mighty men in the middle, and then finally the two expressions of worship. So we're just following these patterns as we look at these chapters. First of all, the two occasions of famine. As we enter chapter 21, the very end of 2 Samuel, famine has struck Israel. After inquiring of the Lord, David learns that the famine in the land is owing to the land being under a curse, For the past sin, not of David, but of King Saul, for shedding the innocent blood of the Gibeonites. Now, we don't have a record of Saul attempting to eradicate the Gibeonites, but we do find biblical background explaining why Saul's intentions were so serious and sinful. Let me give you some of that background. It comes from the book of Joshua, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. But after, remember, after Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, they, are, they were called to exterminate the remaining Canaanites that were in the land. But if you remember, they were persuaded by the Gibeonites to make a covenant of peace with them. So Saul violated that covenant. As a result, even though Saul is dead as the king, his actions, much like, much like David's have and will, negatively affect Israel, its people, and here, its land. So back in the days of Joshua, Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites. We won't wipe you out. We won't kill you. 
Well, Saul killed them in violation of the covenant that Joshua had made on behalf of the people of Israel. And so the land is coming under judgment for those sins that Saul had committed way back then. But as the current king, David accepts responsibility for the acts of his predecessor, and he humbles himself before the Gibeonites, seeking to make restitution for Saul's sins. The Gibeonites demand that seven of Saul's sons die for their violation of this covenant, and David agrees. And so he selects seven. He spares Mephibosheth. And these men die an accursed death in satisfaction of divine justice, and David provides a proper burial for these men, and the curse is lifted off the land. This is a, it's a strange, it's somewhat a strange passage, but it's trying to show David's desire to do justice in terms of the violation of the covenant that his people did and the proper punishment that that violation deserves. So while some aspects of this famine story may seem surprising and strange, what broader theological issues are illustrated here? Because a passage like this will often baffle us, right? And it should. It should raise questions for us. How does killing someone who didn't commit the crime satisfy divine justice? They didn't do anything. These are people that didn't have anything to do with the sins of the past. And yet they're suffering for the sins of the past. I mean, didn't God say in Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Didn't God say that? What's going on here? This seems to be God going contrary to his own promise and his own word. But notice something. Read verse 1 again. Chapter 21, verse 1, 2 Samuel. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The text indicates that Israel was not, in fact, is innocent. Even though they were guilty... Perhaps the best explanation is that Saul sinned as a representative of his people, Israel. As God's anointed, his actions led to consequences for the people he represented. He represented, And his covenant breach, his violation of the covenant, led to the people falling under the curse of the covenant, not just the king. The land, in fact, fell under the curse of the covenant as well. So in our individualistic Western society, we cannot imagine a scenario where this would be considered fair, let alone right. But that is not the Bible. And that is not the way the Bible presents the way human sin affects people. But when we come to a passage like this, we must humble ourselves before God and before his word. God doesn't owe us an explanation for all of his actions. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may obey all the words of this law. Nevertheless, we know this much. God's ways are always just. Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. God will never do that. God will never treat the righteous as though they were wicked or the wicked as though they were righteous. Genesis 18 again, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What is the essence of justice? To repay the wicked for their sin and to repay the righteous for theirs. 
So we must, when we come to 2 Samuel 21, understand Israel is deserving of this punishment as well. Not just Saul. So when we're tempted to question whether God is fair or just in a certain situation, we must sweetly submit in the language of Romans 9, 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Again, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? But dear ones, even more than this explanation, there is the gospel here. Just as the sins of Saul and David affected the people they represented, so Adam did. Our representative. When he broke covenant with God, what happened to us? We were all placed under the sentence of condemnation and death. We didn't have anything to do with that, did we? See, I'd done different if I was in the garden. Eh, Don't be so proud. No, we would have fallen just like him. But nevertheless, because of Adam's sin, as our representative and his breaking of the covenant with God, he placed us under a curse. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. However, if we've got a problem with the representation of Adam, we're going to have a big problem with the representation of Christ. Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God, bore the curse of our covenant disobedience on the cross, thus turning aside God's righteous wrath against our sin, and his blood serves as the sufficient payment for us to go free. In Adam, we didn't commit the sin that led to our death, but in Christ, we didn't commit the righteousness that leads to our life either. You know what? Representation doesn't look so bad now, does it? And we must remember today that though we are not a theocracy, like Israel, it is a principle of leadership that the kind of people a leader or a kind of person a leader is and the kind of decisions a leader makes have a profound impact on the people they represent. This is true for politicians. This is true for parents. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. That didn't say anything about policies. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Proverbs 28, 12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. It doesn't just say wicked practices. It says wicked people. We must not separate competency and character in leadership because the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. Does it when you appoint us as pastors? Well, they're competent, they're pretty ungodly, but they make some good decisions. How's that work for the church? Creates all kinds of problems in the church when leaders are unqualified to lead it. It's because character can't be separated from competency. Character affects competency. Being presented with the lesser of two evils doesn't give us the right to choose which evil we will support. It isn't about who will win. It's about recognizing that whenever the wicked are in power, the mere presence will negatively affect the group that they serve. 
or rather don't serve. The last chapter of 2 Samuel has much in common with chapter 21, doesn't it? The people suffer for the sins of their king at the beginning and then at the end. But I want you to look at the second uh, occasion of famine in chapter 24 quickly. Let's flip over there. 2 Samuel 24, look at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now notice that verse 1 says that the Lord's anger was what led David to number Israel. However, this is what we read in 1 Chronicles 21.1 about the same incident. Quote, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What? I thought God did it. So God does it in 2 Samuel 24, but Satan does it in 1 Chronicles 21? Same event. While some claim that this is a contradiction, it's actually not, because God is sovereignly using Satan to punish his people for their sin. We know from the book of Job that Satan cannot act without the Lord's permission. While God is never the author of sin, he often works out his perfect plan through agents that are opposed to him. Think of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery or Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites. Satan was behind those things, no doubt. But most importantly, think of the cross of Jesus Christ where Satan and what he intended for evil, God meant and intended for eternal good. So in the case of David numbering Israel, the Lord works through Satan to move David's heart to count the people as an occasion for bringing a just judgment on Israel. Once again, we bow. Behold the kindness and severity of God and the seriousness with which he takes the sin of his people. We might wonder, what's wrong with counting people? Do teachers rest under a curse when they take attendance every morning? Do churches sin against the Lord by keeping a membership directory? What's wrong when Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 exactly how many were baptized in the early church on that Pentecost Sunday? No, it's not wrong to count people. In fact, there were times in the past where God commanded leaders to count people. For instance, think of the entire opening chapter of the book of Numbers. It's just lists of names. Many of you know this because this is where your Bible reading schedule starts to get behind. (laughs) Or Exodus 30, verse 12, where God says, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, there, there will be no plague among them when you number them. Count them, God says. There won't be a plague. Here, God, David counts, and there's a famine. There's a plague. So what makes this case different? Joab, David's military commander, provides the most reasonable explanation. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 24. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that's north to south, everywhere in between, number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king shall still see it but why does my lord the king delight in this thing? So what's the problem here? Joab recognizes it. Something's off. David's delight is the problem. 
Why are you delighting in the number under your rule? Why are you delighting in the size of your influence? His delight is disordered. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, right? But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 16, this king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, and David is forgetting that. It seems that David was forgetting what he knew so well previously. We're like him, aren't we? We know. We just don't remember to know. Look at 1 Samuel 17. I'll just read you these verses. Then David said to the Philistine, remember when he's fighting Goliath? You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, and all that, it, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David knew this. He didn't respond to Goliath. Wait, how many we got on backup? How many? How many are ready to go if I fail? No, he said, one's enough. God's with us. So this was a sin because it represented David and Israel placing God, replacing God rather, with an army as their source of identity and security. And because it represented a military buildup with a view toward conquest, David's like, all right, we're going to take some more here. We're moving out. We're going to build and grow God's kingdom. How many people we got? And he was delighting to know that number. So, dear ones, what do we delight in? What thought about what you have or what you make makes your heart soar just a little? Is it how you look, how much money you made, an award you got, SAT scores, or where you go to college, what you see when you look in the mirror, how many others pay attention to you, Be aware of anything that takes the focus of your identity, your security, your happiness off of God as the ultimate object of that trust and delight and happiness. But even as Joab completes the census, as David asks him to count the people, David's conscience is smitten, and he's bothered by it. And he acknowledges his sin to God. Look at verses 9 and 10. And Joab gave him the son of the number, sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. All right, we got enough. Let's go. But look at verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. David sins, but David is a model repenter. This is why he's faithful. He's not faithful because he never sins. He's faithful because he repents, and he repents well. How good of a repenter are we? Do we talk like that? I've sinned. I've done foolishly. I recognize that what I've done has displeased the Lord. Please take away my sin, Lord. Now, there are still consequences for David's sin. Another famine does come on the land here in the next verses. But David again intercedes, and in verse 17, the Lord mercifully relents 
and lifts the famine off the land. The plague ends as an altar is built and sacrifices are made. So yet, while 2 Samuel 24 ends on this happy note of David interceding and the Lord showing mercy, something even more significant is happening than what we might realize. And this is what blessed my soul so much this week. What is the significance of this moment for the broader plans of God as 2 Samuel wraps up? I want to read you a few verses from 1 Chronicles 21, verses 28 and following. At that time, this is the same event getting recounted by the chronicler in 1 Chronicles. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, this is a significant event. This will be the very place where Solomon will later build the temple. This spot will become the place where atonement is made and sin is paid for. And there's even more in David's words here. In verse 17, he said, Behold, I have sinned, I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Look at verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel and was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? But let, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Well, a thousand years later, God would answer that very prayer. A son of David would come. And seeing the judgment of God hanging over the people of God, asked that judgment to fall on him. And God answered David's prayer. His hand was against David's house for us. The hand of God's judgment did indeed fall on David's offering on this same spot that he's offering this prayer, Mount Moriah at the threshing floor near the temple of Solomon as Jesus hung on the cross. It was not only answered in the the fact that it was David's a family member of David that took the judgment, it was the place David prayed the prayer that Jesus hung and died for us. What's our response? We should respond the same way the people did. Verse 14 says, Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. (laughs) Let's cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And that's what we do, and so we are saved. If we cast our hands, or cast ourselves into God's hands of mercy through Jesus. So that was the first longer point. These next two points, I promise, are much shorter. But that was, those are the longer sections, so I wanted to deal with these two occasions of sin on the part of David and the way that the Lord responds. Now let's move to the two accounts of mighty men. This will be much shorter. In addition to the challenges of famine that are brought on by sin, both of Saul and David, in these chapters, in chapters 21 and 24, we come to two accounts in chapters 21 and 23 of David's mighty men, his army, his val- valorous, courageous 
loyal soldiers who fought for him on his behalf. And these sections contain descriptions of their various exploits and we're reminded in these accounts that David was a great king who inspired tremendous valor in the people who were willing to stand with him and risk their lives for him. Look at chapter 23, and we'll just look at a few verses here in chapters 13, or verses 13 to 17. Chapter 23, verses 13 to 17. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. Remember that? Way back in the story when David was first on the run from Saul. Verse 14, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Verse 15, and David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did, risking their lives for David over and over and over again. We're also reminded that David did not do this alone, that his victories were a team effort. Verse 10 He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Verse 12, we read, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. But in the end, we are reminded by these exploits of these mighty men that there is only one perfect king. Jesus, as the list ends, with what name? Look at this, this listing of mighty men in chapter 23. What's the last name on the list at verse 39? Say it if you get there. Uriah the Hittite. Oh yeah, he's missing. Why? King killed him. Why did he kill him? Because he didn't want his sin to be found out. David's an imperfect king. David's not the king we're looking for. He's a king who covers his sin and kills people to make sure it stays hidden, which is a sad reminder of David's great sin against God at the end of this list of mighty exploits that David and his men did. God never forgot it. In fact, the way David's life is summarized in either Kings or Chronicles is David did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That whole event hung over David's life as a reminder that he was not the, sin, the, the, the king the people were looking for. That even though David had loyal soldiers who would never betray them, he would betray one of them in a heartbeat if he could. And he did. One of his most loyal In fact, in 1 Kings 15.5, which I just quoted, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So dear ones, much like the mighty men of David who risked their lives so that he could drink, Jesus gave his life that we might have living water. He could have taken that all himself and he poured it out for us 
Just as David poured out water, Christ poured out his very life for us. And in response, we are called to be mighty men and women for Christ. We are those who are called to serve alongside of Jesus in the Lord's army of the church where we wage war, not physical war, spiritual war. Living lives of love and preaching the gospel to those who are outside of Christ. We do so with the lyrics of, O church, arise in our mind. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that mates the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. We're called to be loyal to our king even as his popularity wanes among the masses and cultural Christianity begins to breathe its last gasps. He's worthy of our total and complete devotion. And here's one thing you never have to worry about. You never have to worry about him setting you up and killing you because he's trying to cover his own sin. You'll never have to worry about that with King Jesus. Because he's already proven it. He dies for you before he ever asks you to die for him. David didn't do that for his men. Jesus did that for you. And so have no fear of risking all for this king. All that you give, he is more than able and willing to repay. And he will. He will never out, he will always outgive his servants. You will get more than you ever bargained for and more than you ever feel like you will deserve. Ten trillion times more. Because no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mothers or lands for my sake and for the gospel will fail to inherit houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and lands in this life with persecutions and in the end eternal life. Jesus will give you all that you need now and he will give you much more later. You will never do as much for him as he's already done for you. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even if the end, we have our liberties eroded, our businesses sued, our motives questioned, our church picketed, our pastors jailed, our employees fired, or our cultural influence reduced. We don't want any of that. We want God to send revival. But if the night grows darker, God's people's light will shine all the brighter. As long as they are faithful to Jesus. We'll continue to serve him in the strength that he supplies. So in conclusion, we have two expressions of worship. We've seen the two, the two occasions of famine, the two accounts of mighty men, and now we come to the two expressions of worship in chapter 22 and 23. And in this case, I already described, remember Pac-Man's mouth? The center is the most important point. Everything else is leading to it. So if you start here, we started here with these two occasions of famine. Then we moved into the two accounts of mighty men. Now we're coming to the expressions of worship. And that's at the very heart of this passage. And it should be because it's at the very heart of David's life. And it's at the very heart of our lives as God's people. So in light of the narratives on either side, how does this poetry stand out? How do David's prayers compare and contrast with the scenes before and after? Now recall where we began our study of Second or First Samuel all the way back in January, almost a year ago, with Hannah's prayer that Joe read for us at the beginning of the sermon. I said that her prayer foreshadows many of the themes that will take place in First and Second Samuel. And even as David's prayer and his concluding worship in this book of, in chapter 22. All he all he pulls from the similar language that Hannah had already prayed, even though he never met Hannah. 
He never knew Hannah. He's praying the very same things that Hannah was praying about with two differences. Let me give you the two passages I'm thinking about. 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, Hannah prayed, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. All right, that's what Hannah prayed. Now listen to what David prayed. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now what has changed? What has changed from the beginning of 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Samuel? What Hannah anticipated many years before has now been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in the most immediate sense through David, who has delivered Israel from the dark, oppressive days of the judges, with both Hannah and David looking forward to a future fulfillment. And who's going to bring that fulfillment? Last section, Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke 1 with me. This is where we'll conclude. And this is where we will begin, Lord willing, next week as we take up the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, and I want you to notice the very phrases, the very words that are used in verses 30 through 33. As Jesus' birth is foretold by the angel. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. There's our one. There he is. Finally, the one who will not commit the sins of his father David. The one who will be great, just as Hannah prayed for. Just as David prayed for. Just as they worshipped in light of this son who was to come. And he's not just going to be the son of David. He's going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to be son of David and son of God. And God, the Lord God, is going to give to this one who was born of Mary the throne of David, his father. And this throne will be given to him forever. He will reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. We're evidence of that this morning. We are evidence that the king marches on, and his kingdom continues in the present world, gathering his people his mighty men, his mighty army, who serve him faithfully and loyally all the days of their life, offering him continual worship and trusting in him alone 
to remove from, for, for, from us and for us all, this, all the curse of God that our sin has brought on us. We have no curse like David's people experienced because Christ took our curse. He took our curse. Therefore, what do we live now? In view of the mercies of God, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is what? This is our spiritual worship. This is how we live out 2 Samuel 21 to 24. We trust in the David, David's son that has come. We pledge ourselves to him. We, we rely on him to bear our curse and intercede for us. And we pledge ourselves in loyal service to him all the days of our lives, risking everything for him because he gave everything for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these precious months that we've had in this book of Samuel and all that it shows us about the story of Hannah and the story of Eli and the story of Saul and the story of David, but ultimately the story of Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Jesus is the one who taught us that all the writings of the Old Testament pointed to him that it was all centered in him and all about him, whether it was written in the Psalms and the prophets or in the writings, everything in the law, the prophets and the writings was to be fulfilled in him. And so Lord, thank you for giving us a glimpse of our Christ. There's so much more that we could have seen that we have yet to see, but we look forward to the day when faith will be sight and we will know even as we are fully known. And until that day, Keep us trusting and relying on our son of David and loyally faithful to him all the days of our life. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.